The Police were an English rock band formed in London in 1977. They disbanded in 1986, but reunited in early 2007 for a hugely successful one-off world tour that ended in August 2008. The Police have sold over 75 million records, making them one of the world's best-selling artists of all time. The band has won a number of music awards throughout their career, including six Grammy Awards, two Brit Awards, winning Best British Group Once, an MTV Video Music Award, and in 2003, were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. College Radio Day's Rob Quick interviewed drummer Stuart Copeland and found out that his career began in college radio. Listen now to our keynote interview for College Radio Day 2015. Stuart Copeland. Absolutely delighted to have on the other end of the line Stuart Copeland. Uh, Stuart, how are you today, sir? Excellent. I'm in California, so it's pretty hard not to be excellent. And obviously World College Radio Day is an event heard around the world. You have surely, with the police and obviously on your own, toured many countries around the world. I have great empathy for the rest of the world because as an American, I grew up outside of America in the world. And uh, pretty uniquely among Americans, I have a sense of what it is to really be an American. You know, I grew up in uh, Cairo and in Beirut, Lebanon as the American kid. Hmm. And in England, in British boarding school, as the American kid. So I have sort of been hyper aware of America's um, profile uh, around the world. And talking to your college kids around the world, I can tell you that I'm one American over here in America that understands how differently this country looks from outside to the way Americans see themselves from inside this country. In fact, I'm doing a little documentary about that right now, growing up in Beirut as American. I actually felt more comfortable in those days as an American in Beirut than I did as a Yank in Somerset. Right, right. Interesting, isn't it? I, I read about that as well, about your upbringing. So what did that bring when you joined the police and obviously Sting and Andy uh, were two well, Brits? It brought Arabic music, for one thing. The Debki, that's what it brought. Is actually, I could get all technical here, but... The drop beat in uh, Arabic music, baladi music, which is uh, Arabic uh, country music, uh, and much of the modern music is kind of based on that fundamental Arabic beat, uh, has the drop kick on three of the bar, and uh, they generally omit beat one, which is very similar rhythmic uh, uh, motif to uh, reggae. And so when in the police days and way back in the late 70s, we started experimenting with reggae, I already had that in my nervous system, that drop kit on, you know, on, on three. And so reggae, I had kind of a leg up. I was able to beat the clash to it. I just understood fundamentally in my bones the meaning of that type of rhythm. So we had a little uh, head start there. It was clash. I have to give it up. Right. Clash had the idea of introducing, uh, uh, joining punk and reggae. So, so actually, so what you're saying is, of course, obviously the international aspects of your life and your upbringing actually genuinely impacted the music that you were creating with Andy and Sting. Absolutely. Uh, and the good news is that uh, the sensibilities that I got from weird music, for me, you know, ethnic music is not alien. I love it. But I sense that the people around me, particularly here in America, they don't hear it as music. They hear it as an alien invasion. Uh, whereas I, you know, so the sensibilities that you pick up around the world are really colorful, exotic, you know, they, they have a real, a real feel to them. But it's, you need somebody from Newcastle to bring it on home. 
And I think we were very lucky to have, you know, uh, Sting learned his craft of writing songs on the uh, pleasure cruises when he was, the, you know, they had a band, they played covers. He right. had his nose rubbed in hit songs every day. And whether he liked it or not, he had to learn how they were structured and how they were, you know, what the, you know, what the, the, the tools of a hit song are. And so I guess the combination of those two things uh, gave us the police. So if we can talk about the early days for a little bit, um, when you look back to those early days, and uh, you know, the first album, and obviously your first uh, tour to America, when you played CBGB's, obviously 1978, it was during that time that obviously some college radio stations in America were, were playing the police massively before you caught on in the mainstream. What are your memories of, of that first tour in America? Obviously, being an American, you, it wouldn't have been as unfamiliar to you as Sting and Andy, but what are your memories of that first tour? Well, I was an ex-college jock myself at UC Berkeley, uh, K-A-L-X, and I was the, uh, the, the, the boss, the, the English jock. In fact, I played the, uh, uh, I was the boss jock that played the boss tunes that my boss told me to play for you, um, uh, which was my gag at the time. It was funny 40 years ago. <laughs> so hang on, so you were a college radio jock? Oh, absolutely. I've done every job in show business. I've been a roadie. I've been a drummer. <laughs> I've, I've even been a singer, for God's sake. Well, okay. Well, we, we could talk about Clark I Kent as well lights. later. Yeah. I was tour manager. I've done, I've done pretty, a journalist. I've been, done pretty much every job in, in, in rock music and so, quite a few in the film industry as well. So your time on KLX uh, Berkeley then, did that, uh, how was that time for you? Could you? Do you remember those days? I do indeed. I discovered Bob Marley. And the, and the Whalers, uh, and, and reggae in general from that, you know, I, I would get the radio, you know, uh, I don't know if it's still like that, but in those days, every radio station across the land made its own decisions about what it would play. So you could go and persuade that radio station to play your record by talking to the guy, usually by giving him some drugs or money uh, hmm. and persuade him, or maybe even he liked the record and would play it. Uh, nowadays, the decisions are made centrally out of New York, and then one decision is made, and then 700 stations play it. Sort of like your radio show right here, right now, as a matter of fact. <laughs> uh, not to put too fine a point on it, but in those days, you could go to each individual radio station and persuade them. And so I was the college guy at the college radio station that they came to persuade. Uh, and I, I, I think I got one free dinner. Was was the, the, that's the power? We were only a, a 10-watt station, so I only rated about one free dinner worth of, air, you know, to give them the <laughs> airplay they wanted. But I did get a lot of free records, and amongst them was Bob Marley and the Whalers. And I was the first kid on my block to discover that stuff. Well, you know, KLX, obviously a college radio day participant. You mentioned, obviously, today uh, in commercial radio, there's a kind of centralized, homogenized output. Actually, college radio is the last bastion of here's creative programming. That's, uh, it's, it's actually pretty good news, because here are you and I having a friendly little chat. And we're not talking to my 10 listeners in, in North Berkeley. Mm. We're talking to a lot more people. Okay, so a couple of questions I want to ask you about the police, if I may. And I, you know, doing my research, I found out that um, it almost has an element of the supernatural, what I'm about to ask you. So are you ready for this? Okay. okay Clutching so, the rosary. So according to Sting's book, Broken Music, when he finally met up with you in London and actually finally jammed with you for the first time, he called you from a phone box unwittingly, completely coincidentally on your street. And you said, oh, yeah, I'm just here. Come on up. And secondly, in Andy Summers' recent documentary... Wait a minute, wait a minute. Wait a minute. What was Gordon Sumner doing on a street in, Bel in, uh, in Mayfair, yep. 1976? 
apparently he came to look you up. He, he found oh, a phone box right. in Mayfair, and apparently it was just by sheer coincidence he picked the street you were on. Similarly, Andy Summers in his documentary, uh, I Can't Stand Losing You, just came out, says that he went for a jam with you, and then he went to London, and you got off the same train to London together, bumped into each other. and yeah. like Actually, the- it was a tube. We got off the same same tube in Leicester Square, I think. So both incidents genuinely happened? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, when you write a book about it, you find these little things that happen and turn them into events of great significance. But yeah, sure, they happen. It, it is true that, I, I, you know, Andy and I were getting off the tube and, hey, hey, how you doing? And we had just been working with Michael Hallett. We'd, uh, we'd done some dates in France and it was hail and well met. I, I, met. I think we hadn't seen each other for a while. And it's a story I love to tell and Andy hates for me to tell. But I, it's, I only tell it because I love Andy so much. He pulls me into a cafe and says, hey, Stuart, you and that bass player, I think you got something. But you need me in the band, and I accept. <laughs> That's really what happened. I swear as God <laughs> is my witness. That's what he said. And, that, and the thing is that that's who he is. He's yeah. a pushy little guy. And when he joined the band, we really, that, that, that confident energy, that forthrightness, that in-your-faceness, was exactly what we needed. And that's really when the police began, when Andy told me that he, we didn't discover Andy, he discovered us. And that's right. when the police really began. Have you seen his documentary, Can't Stand Losing You? Uh, yes, I have. What are your thoughts on it? Is it a fair representation of what happened? Well, the only dispute I would have is that uh, we actually had a lot of fun. And I got the sense, I, I, it, it may be that Andy, looking back on it, is... is uh, you know, looks back with a little remorse or in some way, but there, there's an atmosphere to the film which belies the amount of fun we had. He had a whole career going on before he even met us. Right. But so did you, though. I mean, if you look at Curved Air, and also yeah, the other... That's the other not quick... much of a career. <laughs> I had a career as a roadie and boss radio jock, but uh, one name band, Curved Air, that was pretty much it. Right. But also, even when you were in the police, you released music as Clark Kent, right? So. Ah. Why did, why did you do that? Was that like you needed that outlet to get out there, your solo material, because you weren't perhaps able to release that in, in the band as the police? Uh, exactly, yes. There were my dumb songs that I wrote when I was uh, 19, uh, 20, uh, actually, in college. I got, you know, I got an apartment of my own. You know, getting my own first apartment was a big deal, and that's a, and I, so I wrote a song about it. Uh, they were way too dumb for Sting to actually sing. He was... You know, like I like to say, he is um, quiet and deep. I am noisy and shallow. And those <laughs> songs that I had were noisy and shallow, but kind of fun. So I went off and recorded my gosh darn self. And I got to play. The fun part was that I got to play all the guitar, bass, drums, piano, kazoo, and even sing the darn thing. Uh, you know, one guy in a studio with a, you know, that was a, a real breakthrough. Amazing what you can do when, with a drum box. You know, in those days, drum boxes were for lounge acts. You know, and you could turn it faster or slower while you play your, you know, in the lounge in the piano bar. And but they were very useful because I could lay that down as as a backing track, and then add the guitar to that, and then add the drums to the guitar, and then do a real guitar to those drums, and then add the bass and the piano, and just spend a glorious day in the studio. So, how important was it for you to do all of the instruments then? At the, I don't know. I had so much fun doing it, but I guess on paper I would have preferred for them to be police songs. But then again, you know, the police was, wasn't getting anywhere at the time anyway. We were completely nowhere. We had been together for a year or two. I think two years. Andy was in the band by that time. So it was, you know, in fact, our first hit 
my first hit was Clark Kent. When Clark Kent hit the charts, you know, scraped barely into the top charts. Top 50. Was it, it was a top 50 hit, your first single with Clark I Kent? I believe it was technically top 40. I think we got to top 20. 40. I got, I personally, singular, first person singular, got to number 28 or something. I didn't make top 20. Hey, look, that was the biggest hit <laughs> I had ever had. Yeah. That was huge for me. I can't, I remember distinctly sitting on the Baker Loo line in London, England, and reading the NME because I had a secret identity. I'd, I'd do my interviews with a, with a mask on, a Brezhnev mask or a paper bag or something, and I pretended to be somebody, which I wasn't. Nobody, I wasn't anybody, but they assumed that I was. And so to be reading, you know, I, I just remember that image of sitting there reading the NME. Uh, normally one would read one's own press surreptitiously so as not to be seen reading one's own reviews, right. although I had never had any reviews to be seen reading by that time. So there I was it, with my secret identity reading it, and I just remember the feel of joy, of love for the world, of thankfulness, of gratitude for the life that the Lord gave me. I got all spiritual right there on the Baker Line <laughs> in London town. And, and by the way, that, that euphoria lasted about 20 minutes. Right, about 20 minutes. In the documentary that Andy did, obviously, he said that um, the process of producing the music, recording the albums, was say, sort of combative in terms of everyone was yes, jostling well. to get their instruments uh, and their songs on the albums. Uh, yes. Was that really the case? Yeah, we understand the, the dynamic a little bit better now than we did then. And it's because of, you know, we, there are absolutely good reasons why we were in dispute. And fundamentally, we had different ideas of what music is for, let alone how it should be made. And so we brought different sensibilities to the table. And what made it a problem was that there were no passengers in the police. And everybody felt that, it, that their opinion, that their idea of what the band should be doing was really important hmm. and not to be cast aside. So we cared a lot. So you wouldn't say, should this be a guitar solo or a piano solo? Ah, what the hell? Let's do a whatever. No, 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 no. This was an important decision. And we really identified the three of us, each of us, identified with the music. And if anything wasn't the way we, you know, felt was this, as strong as it could be, it really upset us. And there was another factor as well, which we had in our midst one towering musician who just could think faster, come up with ideas. And would just blow all, you know, no matter how much of a, a tower you would build. Oh, I got a great idea. This chord. And, da, 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 da. and then old Stingo walks in with message in a bottle. <laughs> and what are you going to do? Okay, so we were young and we were human. And it was tough. Um, but I th I'm, I'm very proud of the decisions that we made to swallow our pride and to recognize that my song isn't as good as that song. Mm -hmm. And um, we all did very well out of it. But it wasn't an easy process at the time. And although I think we made the right decisions with all the shouting, there was a lot of shouting. And it wasn't easy for Sting because he had these songs and he, had to, he was very generous, in fact, about addressing my songs and Andy's songs, which were not every breath you take. Hmm. Um, and, uh, and at the same time, Andy and I felt like we, you know, if, for instance, Andy wrote a great song called Omega Man. And if hmm. Sting had sung it, I think it could have been a hit. You know, um, but he didn't. And there's another song that that Andy wrote called the "Behind." I think it was "Behind My Camel," where Sting didn't even play bass on it. You know, and the thing is that it's it's 
the reasons for this are very sound. It's not an ego thing. It wasn't a ego thing. It was quality control. And, you know, what seemed like harsh decisions at the time were probably the right decisions. I think, you know, most people would agree that we ended up kind of at the right place. Hmm. And now we look at it and we laugh. And we understand what was going on at the time. And uh, as our understanding has increased, so has our bond deepened. Well, let's talk about that. When you look back now to the reunion tour 2007-2008, you know, uh, several years have passed now since that happened. Um, what are your thoughts on it, looking back? Oh, it was brilliant. We came to these, all that nice stuff that I just said, I, I hope your your listeners are, you know, they're, they're so, their sobbing has subsided somewhat. <laughs> uh, we figured that all out during the reunion tour. And, man, did it come as a surprise, you know, because all of us, you know, I'm sure one of us was expecting it to be hell on earth, but I sure wasn't. I was expecting to get back with the buddies who made me who I am, you know, all my cool stuff that I've come up with since. A, a big part of it comes from what I learned from those two guys. And so I thought when we got back together, it was going to be just that old glove that fits perfectly and we just slid into that slot. You know, because when we left, we were in the slot. When we broke up, we were absolutely in our prime. We were in each other's pockets. We knew each other's nuances. No matter what Andy did, I knew where he was going to go next. And how about this? And I could throw him a curved ball and he'd pick it up, laugh, and then do something incredible. That's how we, that's the pocket that we were in. So I assumed he would go right back into that pocket. But there's this little thing called 30 years going by, mm. and we had all grown into different musicians. We didn't fit together anymore. It was tough. We had to really ouch and scramble and, and, and squish and push and pull and to, so that we fit together and so that we could even stand making music together. Uh, but the thing that made it worthwhile was the material, which has kind of an impact. And we, you know, that was kind of the referee. If we played it on the record, that wins the argument. And so, you know, it was tough. It was tough for us to get back. And also, each of the three of us had been master of our own universe for decades. And I, for one, was not accustomed to, you know, my bass player coming up to me and telling me which end of my drumstick to use. And <laughs> by the same token, you know, El Stingo walks over to his drummer and says, hey, look, uh, what I need here is, and the drummer looks at, like it, at him like he's got two heads. And not only that, but, well, the drummer in this case, very eager. Sting, whatever you want. Okay, I wake up every day. I'm going to make Sting happy today. And I think Sting woke up every day saying, I'm going to let Stuart be Stuart today. And we would begin every day with these good intentions. But, man, you know, if you give a shit, it starts to rub. And so, but we understood that the, the referee was, whatever we played on the record, the issue is, you know, we can change things if we all agree, but if there's a dispute, we go back to the record, okay? Uh, that's sort of how we got through the rehearsals. But come the first night in Vancouver, and we walk out on the stage, and the first 20 feet of fans is just the, the looks on their faces, the feeling that they had, the, the you know couples holding each other. Ah, it was so emotional, so powerful, that that became the arbiter of everything police. That audience became the referee, and we're up there thinking, okay, I may not agree with some of the things you're doing, but these folks here sure do like it, and so let's go with it. And that's when it became musically very rewarding on stage. We still, right up to the end of the tour in sound checks, could not agree 
you know, we didn't, we'd play sound checks just for the, the crew to get the gear together, hmm. not for the joy of playing music. We didn't have any. We don't get each other. We're just not birds of a feather until we're in front of the audience playing Roxanne. Then it comes together, and I understand why I'm on stage with these two guys, because they do this, and this really works. Well, let's talk about those sound checks because I've got a question specifically about that. Andy in the documentary says that it's during those soundtracks when you would jam and improvise. That oh, actually, back in the old days. Back in the old days? Okay. Yeah. So, so, so during the sound checks this time, were you jamming and improvising? These days, we did something much better than that, which, which sounds a little bit weird, but hear me out. We would, a large part of the income from the tour came from sponsorships. People would buy a chunk of the police tour. And uh, that's sort of just the way showbiz and sports indeed works this, these days. And part of their perks that they would get for giving us a lot of money was to have a sound check. They get to bring their guests to a sound check. And they would sit there in the front rows of the stadium, an empty stadium, while we're doing our sound check. We have an audience of 15 to 20 people, hmm. which is weird. So, Sting had the brilliant idea, how about we get those 15 to 20 people on stage and one by one they can sing a police song. And that right. saves him hurting his voice, we get a sound check on his vocal mic, we, we run through our instruments, we play the things, we could even fix a, a beat of the music if we want, but we get the thrill of those fans on our stage feeling what they imagine we feel. But we don't feel that way until we experience it with those fans on our stage singing into our microphones. That reminded us of what it is that we're doing and how cool it is. You know, it's our day job. But when these people come on the stage and we can just sense their wonder and they're on the stage and walking around just like three feet from Andy's amp, you know, and, and like they could touch my bass drum and they could... Damn it, they can touch Sting, and what quite a few of the ladies did, and a couple of guys too. You know, that reminded us of how cool it all is. And so that was much more fun than a sound check. I suppose the question I really want to ask you is was there ever any discussion or experimentation about creating new music? About, hey, could we perhaps record new songs or do a new album? Oh, yeah, of course. Everybody around us had, uh, you know, there's a, a, a uniform vision of everybody who wasn't the three of us, you know, record company, <laughs> uh, everybody, 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 the, the, the catering lady had all had the same brilliant idea. Shouldn't they be recording new material? Only problem was we didn't have any new material to record. I think that Sting, who's one of the most prolific writing geniuses of our time, the minute he got into a room with Andy and I just shriveled right up. And I'm sad to say this, folks, and I, know, I, I hope this isn't too disappointing for you, but the police is a place where my talent goes to die. And I have to subjugate myself into police world, and it gets weird. And as soon as we're on stage, it comes to life. But everything that isn't on stage with the police just is not where any of the three of us want to be. And so I'm sure that Sting trying, you know, he, you know, sure it's a good idea. Okay, song, song. And he picks up his guitar or his lute and he's trying to get a song. God, but then Stuart's going to, oh my God. And then, and I could, I, I, I can picture the scene and my heart goes to him because the minute the tour was over, he wrote a musical. Bang, like that. His talent came right back. And as soon as the tour was over, I wrote a 90 minute, you know, concerto. And, uh, you know, just I've been writing orchestra. It's, 
exploding with creativity the minute we're out of there. But, you know, that sounds kind of weird, but the, it's strange. But when the three of us get on that stage in front of an audience that is responding to those songs, that's where the police exists today. And if it ain't that, we're kind of not doing it. We, you know, we hang out socially, we exchange emails, we love each other, we appreciate what we brought, we brought into each other's lives. Just let's not talk about music. I suppose I had to just ask the final question about the police, which is, will it ever happen again, or what, what's no, going to happen? I, I would say, possibly, you know, we're not talking about it. There's no plan. We get on with our lives. Uh, we got other fish to fry. I wouldn't be, you know, no, it's not going to happen. But then again, we always say that. <laughs> Let me talk about all that you have done since the police, because it's extraordinary. Now, as a young lad growing up in Cambridge, England, I would go down to the market on Saturday with my little bit of pocket money. And obviously, I grew up with the police. I, my first ever CD that I purchased was The Equalizer and Other Cliffhangers. And that was really eye-opening for me. And of course, obviously, since then, you've done tremendous things. You've done soundtracks. You've worked with symphony orchestras. More recently, you've been in a quintet called Off the Score. Was that always your first love, to do more experimental, perhaps orchestral music? The same problem existed in my family, which is my mother listened to 20th century orchestral music. Stravinsky, Ravel... Aaron Copeland, Carl Orff, and uh, Debussy. My father was a jazz musician, and he raised me to be a jazz musician, white big band jazz, which I've later learned is otherwise known as wrong jazz. And those two types of music, you know, were competing in my head. Actually, to tell you the truth, I preferred the Stravinsky <clears throat> to the uh, Woody Herman, uh, <clears throat> with the exception of Buddy Rich, who totally rocked. Right. But then then along came Jimi Hendrix with his guitar, and that was it for both of those other kinds of music. Um, and it became all about raging guitar and drums. All the way through teens, adulthood, career. And it wasn't until getting back into movies, or getting into movies uh, as a virgin film composer, sitting in a room showing my humble offerings to Francis Ford Coppola for his film, my first film that I scored. And uh, he turns around and says, yeah, it's great, love it. I want strings. Mr. Coppola, absolutely, yes, um, strings. Oh, God. So then I had to go, well, how, you know, and I said, give me strings. We can need strings. The director wants strings. And um, the first question is, well, how many strings? What do you mean? How many? <laughs> Eight? A hundred? Twenty? I, I don't know. Strings. You know, and I ended up with maybe 20 guys. Right. And, uh, and, and it's not just, it's more complicated than that. Well, how many firsts and how many seconds? How many violi? Ah, sh um, Anyway, so we got, so I got somebody to fire up some strings. And long story short, I discovered that these kinds of musicians who are so alien in many regards um, are really cool at one thing, and that's reading a score. So all you have to do is put a score in front of them, and they play it perfectly. Note every note that you put on there, every hairpin, every piece of Italian, every tenuto, every uh, everything. They play it perfectly, and there's no debate. Wow. That's sure different from playing in a band. And so uh, that's where the love of music on the printed page came about. It's a form of megalomania. And um, I'm sure that uh, Sting and I both agree on this point. If you can control every minute detail of the music, that's a better world. And so uh, if he could have written his music for Andy and I to play, note for note, and if we had been slaves to the page, I'm sure he would have been a lot happier. As I'm sure I am a lot happier that I work with a 90-piece orchestra and they're all slaves to the page. I work with the Chicago Symphony. Or I'm writing a piece for the Pittsburgh Symphony right now. 
and there won't be any debate. I'll walk out there, I'll put the scores on the stand, the conductor will raise his baton, and we will all play together. And the first read-through might be a little scrappy, but it'll be pretty darn good. The second read will kick ass. You don't get that with rock players. Is it a different kind of satisfaction, I would imagine? Yes. It's, uh, as you get older, your tastes get a little bit more complicated and fancy schmancy. Uh, so, yes, the nuances, the, the, the variety of color, texture, weight, and so on, uh, are just a little more inspiring for me. And, but, by the way, my mission is to make that big, bad orchestra rock like a band. You know, a three-piece rock band can, you know, do some damage. Well, I want those, that big orchestra to do some damage, too. I'm on a mission to do that. You know, most of the guys who come out of music school are trying to be Mozart or Brahms or something like that. No, 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 no. That's not where I'm. That's not what I'm going to use that orchestra for. My final question would be then, as a professional percussionist, as a drummer, I, I, when it comes to drums, I'm pretty much semi-pro these days. In what way? Most of the drumming I do, I don't get paid for. Right. But in terms of life around you on an everyday basis, as someone who is so involved with percussion, does life itself have some kind of rhythm? Absolutely. If you know where the beat is going to land, you can jump on it. So said the rhythmist, 1984. That's quite profound, actually, isn't it? <laughs> uh, really, <laughs> kind of dumb, but kind of profound. I don't know. It's a little bit spinal tap, I suppose, but uh, you know. Well, Stuart, thank you so much for joining us on World College Radio Day. It's been a treat. Well, a treat for me too.